singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in many ways. For example, you can go and write a brief review on iTunes. You can leave a like. Uh, you can leave a comment on YouTube. You can click the like button, or you can simply go and make a donation on my website. Today, the guest on my show is Doug Woolens. Doug is basically the man behind a brand new film about the technological singularity. So, hi, Doug, and welcome to the show. Hey, Nikolai, how you doing? Fantastic. I'm incredibly happy to have you here on the show. I'm excited to be here with you. Fantastic. So, uh, perhaps I should start by asking you, how do you feel now that the table has been turned on you and you are on the other end of the camera rather than behind it? I'm not one to be in front of a camera. I'm a documentarian. I like to talk to people. I like to think about what they say. I like to respond to the things they say. But boy, put me in front of a camera. I, you know, I guess what's okay about it for me is that I'm not acting. Excuse me, I'm going to put my coffee down. I'm not acting. If you ask me to act or perform in any way, then then I get really nervous. But you know, I'm just going to be myself, so that's okay. Fantastic, and that's exactly what we we're asking here for: yourself and your movie and what they're all about. But before we get there, Doug, let me just ask you this: How did you get interested? in making documentary movies in the first place, and why? Well, that's a good question. So I used to be a lawyer. I practiced in New York City and in California for a bunch of years, nine or ten years, and I didn't love it. I, you know, there's <laughs> all sorts of stories that go along with this. Um, I, didn't, I didn't love it. I, I didn't uh, really want to be a lawyer, I think, is the deal. This is back in the 80s when status was important, when the job title that you had was important, at least you know, it was the Reagan era, where it's all about <laughs> debt and and credit and what could you make yourself out to appear as. So I was a lawyer, and I, I didn't love it. It was it was okay. I lived in New York, and um, I moved out to California. And you know, it sounds all land of fruits and nuts, but I thought to myself, you know, what can I do to make me happy? And not in a selfish way, but you know, what can I do that I could that I could really enjoy? And I thought about the things that I that I studied in college. And um, I really wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be the next great American novelist and and I wanted to uh to write. So I took a beginning writing film screenwriting class and and that was a lot of fun. And so the next semester this is all through adult ed, this is while I was a lawyer. Uh, I took another uh, adult ed class on beginning filmmaking, and that short film that I made in, in my filmmaking class went on to Sundance. And I was really lucky. Uh, it gave me a lot of confidence uh, as a filmmaker. It, it certainly did not open a, a zillion doors, and I did not become a, a huge producer because my short film went to Sundance. But it did give me a lot of confidence to say, okay, I could do this, uh, and I could create the films that I want to create. I never really went to film school beyond that. I took a couple of classes here and there, and that really launched my career as a filmmaker. I stopped practicing law and and worked my way up. Uh, first, I was a, a PA. I would get coffee for, you know, Meg Ryan or whomever I was, you know, working with on, on feature films. I did some commercials and then worked my way up into the camera department, asked a lot of questions along the way, and started to make my own films. And wow. uh, that's what I'm doing today. 
Wow, that's, a, that's an absolutely fascinating story, starting as a lawyer and ending up as a, as a filmmaker. So let me ask you this then. What do you think is the difference between a documentary filmmaker and, you know, a, a fiction like a normal Hollywood filmmaker? You know, <laughs> in terms of people, we're all the same. We're just people. And I know that's not what you meant. Um, you know, documentary is funny. You, you know, people think that documentary is truth. And to a large degree, there is truth in documentary. We expect to learn something in a documentary, where in a fiction film, it's just we are entertained. But we are entertained in documentaries, and if we're not, it's going to be pretty do boring, and it's not going to get us to the end of the film, because you want to watch the whole thing, or as a filmmaker, you want your viewer to watch the whole thing. So you do want to entertain in some way. And truth, wow, that's a tough one, because what is truth? You know, is this my truth? Is this, you know the world's truth, and who am I to say, you know, what the world's truth is. When documentary first started, I don't want to, you know, teach you all about documentary or bore you in any way, but when documentary first started, it was, uh, the first documentary was a film called Nanook of the North, and it was a documentary that took place in Alaska, and it was about um, an Eskimo and his family, a guy named Nanook, and it had shots of Nanook doing his thing, you know, hunting and fishing for... Uh, for seals and things like that, caring for his family. And because this was in uh, turn of the century, 1900s, there wasn't audio on it. There wasn't voice. There was images, and then there was text. Nanook then, you know, fed his family by killing whales, you know, whatever they did, right? And it was this voice of God, and that's what they described it as, a voice of God, the narration. It wasn't a, a real voice. It was text. But that voice of God was truth. And because that voice of God said this is what's happening, then it must be true. Well, in documentary, things shifted over the years that documentaries have been made. And, and it's not so much that um, we get truth simply by seeing what's on screen. We understand that, well, where the filmmakers put the cameras help tell the story, or what's included or not included, help tell the story. So there isn't a real truth, it's the filmmaker's truth, or the story they're trying to tell. So I guess the long and the short of it is, as a documentary filmmaker, we try to tell a story that's truthful and based in fact, and to me that's extremely important, that it's based in fact, where a fiction filmmaker might tell a story that is based in fact and really try to drive home a point, but it's all made up. And so the people going into it, as the viewer, don't think, I am going to learn facts. They might walk away going, wow, I learned something from that, but they didn't necessarily go in thinking, I'm learning facts. It's kind of a long and short story there. So you are, in a way, a storyteller. Absolutely. I consider myself a storyteller. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's so fascinating about the technological singularity in general, and perhaps Ray Kurzweil in particular, that you decided to tell that story then? Well, we, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, it's, it's fascinating. I grew up in, I was born in 1959. I grew up in the 60s. I was a small child in the 60s. And that was a time... Uh, when we believed that science could fix everything, could do everything, we got to the moon. We had these 
huge achievements. I remember watching them walk on the moon when I was a child. I was nine years old. It, that was so amazing. I loved playing with the rockets. When I was a, a small kid, you know, five, six, I don't remember exactly how old, and I would go to the library with my mom. We would look at all these science books. It was so interesting. I was fascinated by science. And to this day, I still believe that science could do a lot for us. I don't know if it can solve all of our problems, but I am fascinated by it. And so I had just finished 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I had just finished a documentary called Butterfly about a, a young woman who sat in a tree for two years preventing it from being cut down. I mean, this was a crazy cool film. It was, took place here in Northern California. Wow. This young woman, she was 20. I don't want to minimize her age. She was or who she is. She was uh, Julia Butterfly. She, she was 20 years old. She sat 200 feet above the ground in a tree, in a giant redwood tree that was 25 feet in diameter. Uh, huge tree. Sat in it for two years, preventing it from being part of a clear-cut hillside. And, you know, it's kind of hippy-dippy-ish, you know, it's saving the forest, saving the earth, which I don't want to also minimize. I think it's extremely important. And so I just finished this film about sustainability, and I was traveling around the country with the film, promoting it, going to uh, theaters around the country. And it was playing in New York, and um, I was flying out there for the shows, and I read a, a, a small blurb, it was a paragraph, in Business 2.0 about Kurzweil and uh, the Age of Spiritual Machines, mm -hmm. uh, which had come out in 1999, this was in 2000. And I said, wow, that's kind of neat. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it, it absolutely makes sense that we're going to have computers that are that could be spiritual. And it, I also want to give you an aside. It was at a point in my life when spirituality became somewhat important to me. Um, again, growing up in the age of science, I was a devout atheist. And I love telling people, I'm a devout atheist. You know, I just cracks me up. Um, but when I made Butterfly, my views of the world changed a little bit. I wasn't such an adamant atheist. Instead, I have a, I developed a deeper understanding of um, the universe and our place in the universe and um, a respect for who we are as people within the world, not that we are it. So spiritual machines seemed really cool. So I got off the plane. I literally went right to straight to St. Mark's bookstore in uh, on St. Mark's Place in the East Village, picked up uh, The Age of Spiritual Machines, and read it cover to cover over the weekend. And I, I was fascinated. I thought this would be such a cool film to make. I didn't understand what it would be about necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was really would be really uh, a great topic to to uh, delve into as a documentarian. Fantastic. Very interesting story. So, so tell us then, so at the beginning you didn't understand what the movie would be all about. Now that it's done, what is it about? <laughs> That's funny uh, that I'm not prepared to ask that, answer that question. <laughs> um, the film is about humanity. It's not about machines. The film is about humanity and what it means to be human in an age where technology is becoming more and more pervasive and will be 
become more and more pervasive to the point where some of the things that we think of that are only human are being done by machines. And so what does it mean to be human in a world where these things are shifting that way? And so what does it mean to be a human? You know, I don't necessarily have an answer for that. Um, and, I, and, I, and I say that with, with um, all due respect to every viewer watching this as well as to every person not watching this because these are my opinions and, and I, I don't know. I, I don't want to put my opinions on everyone else. I don't want to, anyone to think that I know because I don't know. Um, but I think that it is important to respect who we are as humans and who you are as a human and to not denigrate you as a human. And I think that if we can nurture each other, this sounds so hokey, if we can nurture each other as, as people, then the world is a better place. Very interesting. So uh, do you happen to have a better answer on the question of... Um What does uh, what does the technological singularity stand for? So the technological singularity has all these different meaning meanings and is loaded in so many ways. And let me also say that as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, my film I combine a lot of ideas. I allude to this. I I suggest things. Things aren't, in my film, they're not always black and white. I don't say, this is what the singularity is. I say that these are ideas for what the singularity is, and I combine a lot. And it's the liberty that I take as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, to not be so direct. And it's sometimes awkward for me to be asked direct questions that <laughs> have to give a direct answer. Okay. So the singularity to me, I've always explained it as, It's the point when computers become smarter than people. And now that's a very simple answer. And we could certainly say that computers in some ways are already smarter than people. They can do things, some things quicker than people. They can give a right answer where I might slow, slower, in a slower way, give you the wrong answer. But the issue is then what does smarter mean? Right? And Smarter isn't necessarily just coming up with a right answer, but what's best for the world answer. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it, it has to imply, the singularity has to imply understanding what people are about, not just calculating. There. Fantastic. Very interesting. So uh, you said that when you made the previous documentary about that girl protecting the big red tree, uh, you felt more or less transformed by the end of it. Uh, did something like that happen with this one? And in what way if it did? Yeah. Um, so my transformation when I made Butterfly was just, I think it was maybe a sense of maturity uh, in understanding the world. Because my films have always been about who we are as people and our place in the world. Um, in Butterfly, we learned about sustainability and, and taking care of the earth in order to take care of us. Um, and that's our place in the world. Prior to that, I made a, a silly film called Weed, which is about this pot competition in Amsterdam. And as silly as it was, the choices that they made in the film, this pot over that pot, should I go to that coffee shop in Amsterdam versus this one? The silly choices that we make Regardless of how mundane they are there, 
those choices are define us as who we are as people. So those choices are very important. When I made The Singularity, the documentary I just finished, I think my transformation came while making it because I was gung-ho. I thought that The Singularity was so cool. It was going to be the be-all, end-all. And through making it, it started, it helped me address questions that I didn't necessarily think about when I first started making it. For for So, for instance, you know, yes, it's all well and good if we could be augmented. But if some people are augmented because they can afford it and some people aren't, is that good for the world? Or, as Cynthia Brazile in the, in the film says, you know, if I could be augmented and run faster or jump higher, but I can't feel the grass on my feet, you know, like, I don't know if that's a trade-off I want to make, she says. And, and that's exactly how I feel. I like being human. And I don't want to lose that humanity. So some people might think that's the most awesome thing in the world. But to me, that's a very scary prospect. The singularity, you mean? If we were to lose our humanity. Mm -hmm. And what, 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 well, that's again going to return you to the previous question of, of what does it mean to be a human. So and that's a really deep question. I mean, in my film and, and through talking to people, I, there, there used to be a section when I was first making the film or, or an early version that had maybe 15 minutes about what does it mean to be human? You know, and, and Ray says, you know, what makes us human is that we create tools that help us overcome those limitations so that it becomes a, a cycle in a sense. Our ability to transcend. Yes, to transcend. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if the world is not black and white where it's this that makes us that and that makes us that. The world is made up of gray, and I don't mean an ugly gray, mm -hmm. but a gray where there's bits of this and bits of this. Yes, it's true. What makes us human is the tools that we create, but it's not the only thing that makes us human. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what makes us human is the fact that we can empathize and that we can love. And those aspects, I think, are so important. The matter of fact, they're so important. It, it is something that I focused on uh, for, for a, a, a good amount of time in my film, this whole sense of consciousness and what is it that we experience that makes us who we are. That, to me, is a, a very important aspect. Mm -hmm. of what yeah. makes it human. And, and I have to say, though, after watching your movie a couple of times and sort of inevitably comparing it to many of the other movies, most notably Barry Ptolemy's Transcendent Men, uh, that's one of the things that I noticed in yours, that it was a little bit, well, perhaps a lot more open-ended, perhaps a lot less pro um, Ray Kurzweil and pro-singularitarian. I mean, it certainly did not deny that possibility at all. I mean, it, it highlighted it in many ways, but in, in many ways it was much more open-ended. It is open-ended, and that's something that I do as a filmmaker. I don't like to be told what to think. I don't, you know, maybe I'm a rebel. I, I don't know. I hate when people tell me, Doug, this is what you must do. When someone tells me that, I usually don't do it. Right, it, it, I become very hesitant, and I, I, there's a lot of pushback. So I don't like to be told what to do. Um, so in my films, I, I put forth information in a way that is both argumentative. I think that's a lawyer in me. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I, I do it in a way that is supportive. I don't want anyone to feel like, you must think this. I want people to get it, though. 
right? I don't want to just put ideas out there. It's, it's easy to think, oh, Doug just put these ideas out there, and you, the viewer, then sifts through it all and thinks. No, I did the sifting when I edited this all together, when I put this together in various stories that guide, you know, I, I, I guide you, I really help you along to get on board with the argument, but you don't have to take that hook and believe it. So it's important to me that we think these things because ultimately it's the viewer, it's every person in the world that should come to terms with some of these notions and then come through it and come up with their own ideas. Yes, this is good. No, that's bad. And a lot in between. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I, I'm not an advocate. That's, that's my line that I tell everybody. I'm not an advocate. I'm a documentarian, which gives me that no, this, this, this essence of, oh, I'm telling the truth. I don't know what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And then I do also want to add in as much as I do sift through the material and, and guide you, I do have some shape or some way and that I'm shaping the discussion so that I, I do want you to walk away with certain ideas that humanity is important and science and technology development is important too. Mm -hmm. I have to say that uh, we have very similar ways of thinking. And uh, I mean, my my uh, pen name, my alias is Socrates. There you go. And, and that's what the, the Socratic method is all about. You know, the ancient Greeks had those symposiums, uh, which basically a symposium is a, is a drinking party. It's a bunch of people coming together in a very relaxed atmosphere, having fun, and yet at the same time discussing very profound, very deep issues like philosophy, ethics, beauty, religion, uh, morality, law, and, and, and so on. And, and Socrates saw himself not as a teacher. He denied all throughout his life that he, was, he ever taught anyone anything, but he saw himself as a midwife as right. basically somebody who creates the environment in which people give birth to their own ideas. And that's why all his so-called students or followers came up with very different and often uh, mutually exclusive or op opposing philosophies in the end of the day. A absolutely, and, and I, I appreciate that. And, and that's an important aspect of how I make my films and why I make my films. And, and a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's a good springboard for understanding my film versus Barry's film, because Barry's film puts these ideas out there. My film, I think, asks the questions then. So what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Wow, if we could do that, then what happens? Or how do we get from here to there? So you already mentioned about some of the things that you would like the viewers and the audience to take away from your movie, but um, what would be the general impact or perhaps do you have any ideas in terms of benchmarking that would show you uh, like a litmus test whether or not you have succeeded in, in, in accomplishing some of your goals? Wow, okay. I have a number of benchmarks. First one was to finish it. And it's <laughs> silly, but it, it takes so much effort to make a film. Um, and anybody that makes a film, uh, you know, finishes it, I, I, I applaud them. It's, it's a huge task. Um, this is a big undertaking for a lot of reasons. When I first started it, um, there wasn't a lot in the way of singularity writings or 
people discussing it. You know, there really was a, a, a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I've said this in, to other people, like when I first started making this and I looked for funding to make it uh, through film grants here in San Francisco or, or other arts and film grants, the people that I talked to that were supportive of my films in the past, they literally laughed at me and said, you know, you can't make a film about science fiction. And I tried to explain, I tried to show, uh, you know, various papers and books, but, you know, they didn't. So, so I, I did it on my own, like I've done with my other films. And, and, and it wasn't that I needed millions of dollars, you know, with the gear these days, you can go out and use prosumer gear and, and shoot some good looking stuff. And, and, um, I use my wherewithal to, to get the, uh, the interviews. Most people were pretty, friendly and, and willing to do interviews. I'm sure you find that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think as long as you give them the opportunity to say what they want to say, not what you want them to say, and that you let them know you're not going to misuse what they say, you know, most people are, are pretty happy to have their voices heard. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it was a huge endeavor to make this into a story. I mean, I had hun- uh, 120 interviewees, hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage, and I I was very intimidated by the material, to tell you the truth. It's like, how do I make a story out of this? And it, it, about four years ago, four and a half years ago, I started to review the material, put it together into various sections, and then hone it in, you know, hone it down and refine it. And, and so finishing the film really was a, a huge benchmark for me, and, and um and I felt a great sense of accomplishment. Getting it out in the world is also, um, <laughs> that's not easy to do. You know, like I, uh, talked to a couple of distributors, um, and that's generally the, you know, like the old school model is you work with a distributor and they spend a couple of million dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars promoting the film, putting ads on TV or in the newspaper so people go to, to films. Uh, as a filmmaker, you learn pretty early on that it's one thing to make a film. It's another thing to say it's at the theaters or in whatever on Netflix. But if nobody knows about it, no one's going to go to see it. Uh, the unfortunate thing is the distributors that I talked to were really not interested in working with me and said they were only interested in supporting themselves. And, um, and it's not that I needed to make a, a huge fortune on my film, but I did want to make sure that A, people saw it, and B, that I would at least recoup some of my money that I, that I spent on it. Most people, most of the distributors were saying, all right, we'll, we'll give you a percentage of what we get, and ultimately I, I knew that would work out to be a percentage of zero. So I started to make calls to get the film onto iTunes, which uh, recently happened. Actually, the, the, the deal took place, the deal that I made uh, with a company that works with iTunes. iTunes won't work with me as an individual because uh, they don't want everybody and their friend to be saying, hey, I've got this film, let's get it on iTunes. If you want to have a feature film on iTunes, you have to work with an aggregator, uh, another company, or have six feature films, and this is only my third. So I started working with this company, um, uh, called Premier Digital Services. Uh, they're out of LA and they, they have a really interesting model. You just pay them a flat rate and then they get it up on iTunes, assuming that it passes the technical specs, which I knew I'd be able to meet. I started doing this about six months ago and it wasn't until last month the film finally got on iTunes. It's a long process. Mm-hmm. So the film's on iTunes, which is great milestone 
But again, how do I get eyes on it? So I started to, you know, call people that I knew, say, hey, check out my film. It's on iTunes. At the same time, I'm trying to get press. Uh, I got some good press with um, TheAtlantic.com and Forbes. Uh, someone, Alex Knapp from Forbes, uh, gave me a nice review. Uh, and I'm doing this. And I'm not doing this, just so you know, I'm not doing it just so that I can get eyes on the film, although that's important. I'm doing this so people hear about these conversations, which I think is the most important thing. Yeah, and... The, so my last milestone is, do I want to make a million dollars on this film? I'd love to make a lot of money. What's most important, though, is that people see the film, talk about it, and it creates discussion. Not just, ooh, the singularity's coming, and and that's cool or it's bad, but what does it mean if the singularity were to happen or the technologies come about? What does that mean to us as people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, uh, you kind of shared very uh, openly with us some of the struggles that you've had. How long did it take you to make the movie? It sounds like a very long time. It was a long time, 12 years. And it's funny, when I first started, yeah, 12 years, when I first started making films 18 years ago and I met other documentarians and they say, I've been making this film for 10 years or something like that, I go, oh my God, what's what's your problem? Or, uh, oh my God, that's 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 crazy. What a deep topic. For me, the reason this film took so long was, uh, first, as I explained, when I first started making it, there wasn't a lot of information out there and I had no financial support. So... For the first couple of years, I, I really just kind of put my head down going, okay, one day I'm going to be able to get a bunch of money from somebody to make this film. In the meantime, I will learn a lot about the singularity. I will talk to people. I will go to events. I will read up as much as I can on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And then one day, I would say uh, seven years ago, I just said to heck with it. I've got a camera. I'm just going to start shooting interviews. And I went with my dear friend, Mark Wallace, Chuck, who shot most of the film uh, with me, the two of us. Uh, we started shooting interviews. First interview we did was with Nick Bostrom, who's not in the film. There's so many great interviews I had that just didn't make it into the film for one reason or another. But that doesn't diminish what the importance the various interviews had in my understanding the topic or making the film just because they didn't aren't on screen doesn't mean that their essence was not in the film. So anyway, so I shot Nick Bostrom. He was in town in San Francisco. So we shot an interview with him at, at, um, at Stanford. And then I shot an interview with Christine Peterson and it was great because I did not know Christine well at the time. And that interview was, was interesting. I, I, I was learning at the same time as I was trying to get to know her, and um, and she was very helpful. And then my next interview was was Ray Kurzweil. He had been in town twice for a couple of different events, but he couldn't do an interview with me in San Francisco. Instead, he goes, I could do an interview with in Palm Springs. So Mark and I, we hopped in our car, we drove to Palm Springs just to sit with Ray for 20 minutes. And that was my first interview with him. Ultimately, I think I did three interviews with him or four interviews with him, and he was always very helpful. But it wasn't easy. But I, 
I just kept shooting interview after interview. I would call people and I'd say, I think you've got something interesting to say. And some people were excited by the idea of being in a film about the singularity. Some people would go, oh, the singularity, I don't know if I could be involved in a <laughs> sci-fi kind of film. But I'd explain to them what I was looking for from them. I wasn't trying to pigeonhole them into saying, ooh, this is good or singularity bad. I was just trying to get a sense of who they are in the world. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge challenge. I would say from seven years ago, let's just put this in perspective. I started the idea of, I came up with the, I, I started to think I should make a film about the singularity in 2000. I'm not the first person to come up with the idea. Don't get me wrong. Um, and then it was in 2005 that I started to shoot. In 2008, I finished shooting. So there was four years, 2004, five, six, seven, eight. Um, that I shot interviews, and then in 2008, I started to edit. And it's a long process, absolutely. Yeah, as a, as a side note, I would say that uh, it's it would be a waste if, if all that amazing interview footage never makes the, the light of day. So perhaps you could consider... Uh, putting it out as, you know, complimentary footage on iTunes or YouTube or somewhere, I don't know, Vimeo. I, I do, excuse me, I'm so sorry, I've got my phone on and I shouldn't have left it on, perhaps. Um, so, I do have some extended interviews. If, if you want to uh, see extended interviews, I have them on uh, DVD and on Blu-ray if you buy those through my website, thesingularityfilm.com, www.thesingularityfilm.com. You can get the DVD or Blu-ray, which does include another 90 minutes of interviews with Ray, with, uh, let's see, um, Christoph uh, Koch, uh, I'm trying to think, Alison Gopnik, with six people in the film. And it's great because... In my film, you really get to sit with the individuals. Um, it's not made up of sound bites. You've seen the film. Yes. Not all of your viewers have, though. You really get a sense of sitting with these people in your living room or in your kitchen and getting to chat with them. You get to see them for who they are and what they're trying to say, not just sound bites. What I did with the extended uh, interviews is I just give you 90 minutes of, like, here's 20 minutes with Ray, an extra 20 minutes with Ray. It's uncut. So a couple of things. You get to see how I worked with the material uh, and what I did. I, I don't condense a lot. I, I really use these long, informative conversations. Mm -hmm. um, but I did want to add some additional stuff. So if you get the, the Blu-ray or the DVD through my website, you can, you can get those. I tried to have those additional interviews uh, through iTunes. They wouldn't let me do that. Mm -hmm. uh, if I were Time Warner, maybe they would have let me, but, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's the way. Maybe down the road, uh, you know, I'll, I'll open up some of the interview, other interviews that, for people that just didn't. Like Werner Vinci, awesome interview, just didn't make it into the film. And it's not because his interview wasn't good. It just, for one reason or another, what he was saying at the moment didn't fit in the story. Mm -hmm. I see. So what's the most surprising thing that you have discovered for yourself during the shooting of the movie then? Uh, this is an awesome question. So there's awesome technology. I mean, I was in awe, totally in awe of nanotechnology. I thought, 
and I still do think that it, you know, when we talk about nanotechnology, I'm not talking about, you know, nanotechnology sunscreen. I, I don't mean that. You know, we're talking about molecular machines, right? The real thing. And that to me is fascinating. It's amazing. That probably is something that was the cool, one of the coolest things. Also studying a little bit of the science of the mind, getting to meet some of the people that are doing experiments with the brain, understanding the brain, getting to talk to some of the philosophers and, and scientists around the science of the mind. That to me was really cool. But the most awesome bit of science that I saw while making the film, I'm telling you, Nick, was having my child last year. You know, all <laughs> that, seriously, all the future science does not compare to the way that I saw my child develop in my wife's womb, right? Or seeing my child birth, that was the most amazing thing. And then seeing now my child, who my son, who's now 13 months old, seeing how he's learning and developing skills and, and problem solving, that to me blows me away. I, I, I'm serious. And I, and I don't mean to poo-poo science. Once we could really understand that, and I, I, I think the problem is we really aren't there yet. We, we're only at the tip of what is possible. We know that we should know about these things, but we don't understand how the brain works. And we aren't at a point where we could create molecular machines. And until then, I think biology, wow. And I would have never have said this a year ago, but biology, that is amazing how evolution has figured this stuff out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can say that biology has been the only maker to successfully create uh, amazing nanomachines as they have. Absolutely. And, you know, there's great promise down the road. I don't poo-poo that. I think it's awesome. And I think we should pursue these, these uh, scientific and technological goals. Um, but we're not there. And, you know, when I hear, a, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound negative anyway. When I hear Ray talk about the inevitability of these technologies or some other people talk about the inevitability of, of changing who we are, we haven't done that yet. Evolution has. We haven't. Once we do, then we could start talking about, uh, uh, some of these things being the most fantastic. But until then, Biology, to me, is the most fantastic thing that I've experienced in the last 12 years while I was making this film. I agree with you, but also, shouldn't we also look a little bit forward and sort of expect, look at the trends as Ray does, extrapolate and see what that all adds up to? Absolutely. I think that's extremely important. I don't want anyone to be misled by what I just said and think that biology is it. And so we could just close the book and go and have our coffee and, and, and live our day. No, we need to pursue these things. That's, you know, part of who we are. It is not who we are. It is part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of that, we need to always become better. Mm -hmm. And, and some of these technologies will help us understand who we are and so that we can get better. So, Doug, what's your what take that, on... That means. I'm sorry. Sorry, say, say again? Yeah, whatever better means, because like, better implies, like, I, I don't know if I can be a better person. 
like better? Does that mean I'm smarter? Does that mean I'm, I, I treat my kid better? I, I, I don't know what better means. So I, I, I have a little hesitant saying better, even though I say it all the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, What's your take on Ray Kurzweil overall? Is you know, he a genius? A, Some people call him a charlatan, a prophet, a futurist, genius. First of all, Ray was very supportive of my film when I first started making it in terms of um, being accessible uh, to me and, and talking with me uh, on film or on tape, as it were. Uh, and I, I appreciate what he's done, uh, both in his writings and what he does in the world, the inventions he's made. I, I, you know, he's an awesome human being. He's, he's doing the best he can as a person. And for that, I, I'm, I'm extremely appreciative and, and thankful. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I, you know, is he, is he, a, the, because <laughs> <laughs> you said first is of all, prophet, is he a prophet? Yeah. That's such a funny thing. Well, yeah, I, the last film I made uh, about Julia Butterfly, the girl that sat in the tree, people would look at her when I would talk to them. And I said, you know, talk to me about the girl in the tree. And their eyes would well up with water and they would they would be in such awe of her. You know, was she a prophet? No, she's a person. Is he a prophet? No, he's a person. Um, and I think he's doing the best he can and trying to understand his place in the world. And he's doing a great job. Right? You know, he's. He's 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 doing the best he can as a person, and he and he is doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, and based on my interviews in the time that I've spent with him, I have to say another thing which really blew me away is like how amazingly understated he is. Uh, at least that's the perception I got from him. He's very humble, very understated, very sort of modest, very unassuming. That for me, someone with his accomplishment with that kind of behavior is. Amazing. That yeah. he has humility. He, he absolutely does, and that's part of who he is. You know, yeah. I'm a lot more uh, open about the things I say. I'm, I'm very outgoing. He and I are totally different people. If I were him, people would probably not like him if he were me, because you know mm-hmm. he is he is so out there, and then to be as as loud and, and all as I am, I think it would be annoying to people. So it fits who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much agree with you. Um, so what's your take in the end of the day? Will we survive our technology? Are you an optimist after a 12-year-long journey sort of diving into that? I am an optimist. And I, uh, and I don't know if it's because I have faith in the technology protecting us or if I have faith in people protecting us from the technology around us, but I have faith in people ultimately. And I don't know if it's because I delude myself and I think that's what I want to believe that at the end of the day, it's just pretty to think these things. I, I'm not sure, but I, but I am an optimistic person. And I think that's the, the tone that you get from my film when you, you know, in the closing remarks, by Alison Gopnik is, you know, it's, it's going to be us that are with, with these technologies and guiding them. So I, I, I do believe that, uh, there's a lot of hope. That's not to say that I'm not scared about some of these technologies because regardless of who we are as people and the protections and precautions that we have doesn't mean that some of these technologies used by the wrong people, uh, can't harm us all and, and, uh, and the world. Mm-hmm. And that's a very scary thought, but but you never know. Right now, we live in a very 
calm society to, you know, like 20 or 40 years ago when we were in the Cold War, you know, the, a lot of thought was that, oh, my God, the world could end because the people on the other side, uh, you know, of the, of the Atlantic could push that button. You know, now there's other things, technologies we need to be scared about that aren't just nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we live in a, a world right now where we do have a lot of hope. And I, and I, and I think that's important. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we're going, we're living in a world which is radically sort of shaking and sort of transforming as, as we speak right now, perhaps much more than, than the Cold War period, which was more or less a static period of, of, of lack of big changes. You know, you had the two camps being pretty well entrenched and, and that was kind of the stalemate. Right now, everything seems to be bubbling, bu- boiling over and transforming and changing radically. Oh, that's, that's true, both uh, technologically and socially. There's no question about that. Absolutely, you know, you yeah. So, Doug, my traditional last two questions that I always ask of all my guests on the show, I mean, we've kind of touched, but it doesn't hurt to reinforce it. Where, where is the best place that people who want to see the movie uh, what's what's the best place for that? So right now the film's available on my website. Uh, it's not available on it. It's available through the website. You can get the DVD or the Blu-ray disc at www.thesingularityfilm.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first place. Uh, it's also available on iTunes. Uh, and I chose iTunes for a, a couple of reasons. It's, it's a platform that many people have, um, and it also has digital rights management, which to me is very important right now. I spent a lot of time and a lot of money making the film. I, I really just hate the idea of it being free. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to be paid something for it. I don't need a lot of money. You know, whatever it costs on iTunes, the three ninety nine or four ninety nine, I think it's super reasonable for it. For now, down the road, it'll probably be cheaper. I'd like to see it on other platforms as well. Right now, I'm working with Amazon. Uh, they, it seems like with Amazon, it's only going to be in standard def, not high def, but it's going to be available in the next month. Um, and I do want to see it out in universities. I mm-hmm. think it's a great teaching tool uh, in universities, in high schools, in junior high. I th- I think it's extremely important that we work with children, youth of today, and excite them about science. Just like I was excited by science, I'm not a scientist, but I am still excited by science. And I would love to see the youth of today excited by science just like I was. You know, I don't know if it's because of our failure to educate kids now, uh, our being America's societal uh, uh, failures to educate kids fully uh, or well. Uh, I don't know if it's the, the money that's going into education, but I don't think that kids are excited by science, and they should be. It's it, There's so much opportunity through science. Mm-hmm. Not that it is the end goal, um, but it helps us. Mm-hmm. And it helps us in, hum- huma- in humanistic ways. I mean, just because... I'm suggesting science is a means. It doesn't get us to a scientific end. It gets us to a humanistic end. <laughs> so uh, I, I do want to see the film out uh, that way. Uh, but those are, those are principally the, the two ways right now, through the website and through iTunes. So, Doug, we've been talking for about 45 minutes or so. Um, if people were to take a single thing from this interview with you today, 
the single most important message that you would like to send out today, what would you like that to be? Oh, gosh. That, you know, I... <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at all the things that, my, that are running through my mind. What's important is that, you know, we all live together, peace, love, and understanding, or that, you know, the world is not black and white. There's all this gray. There's, there's all these important humanistic things that are, that are floating through my mind and saying, these are what I want the world to know. Uh, but, but, but sticking with, with the interview and, and my film, I, I think, uh, what I want people to walk away with is, look, the film is about the singularity. It's about these technologies, but it's really about what does it mean to be human with these technologies uh, advancing? How do we prepare for some of these technologies as humans? How do we accept some of these technologies as humans? And then also, how do we get from here to there with these technologies? It's all you know. It's all well and good to say, oh, mapping the brain, but how do we get there? So the film delves into some of the science as well as. Uh, our place in the world. And I walk you through these ideas and I give you and I support you in thinking these things through, but ultimately it's up to you, the viewer, you, the thinker in the world to say, this is right for me. And this is how I want to live the, in the world. Wow. That's a fantastic, fantastic message. Doug Woolens, thank you very much for being with us today. Nick and all your viewers. Thanks so much for having me on.